4: Hey there. A trigger warning for the listener. We're talking a lot about death in this episode, with mention of homicide. If these subjects are hard for you, it's okay to sit this
0: one out. It's inevitable, just like taxes, as the old saying goes. Death is also a universal experience. We're all going to go through it at some point. And I think it can provoke a lot of fear and existential worry for people.
4: Death. The subject of many poems, movies, and songs. We hear about it on the news and over dinner tables. But what's the reality for those that are left behind? I never wanted to be an expert on the subject of grieving, yet I found myself grappling with the beast after my mom died suddenly this February. If you are familiar with grief, I'm so sorry for your loss. But more so, I wanted to make this episode for those who haven't had to deal with a major loss yet and want to be there for someone who has. I'm your host, Arielle Ravenet. And today, we take a look at a grief camp for kids and what the psychological side of grieving looks like. Let's get looped in Chicago. Oftentimes, when we talk about Chicago, crime is a subject of conversation. It doesn't matter what the numbers actually reflect. It seems violence in the city will always be a hot button topic. But what about those who have been affected by homicide? There are real people and families who are left behind in the wake, and potential future generations that will deal with that impact. The organization Kids Above All has a solution, a free grief camp for kids and adults who've been affected by homicide. I spoke with Dan Katowski, the president and CEO of Kids Above All, about the impetus for starting the camp.
2: Kevin Doyle and his family had been running the Sheila Doyle Foundation or the Sheila, Camp Sheila in honor of his mom who was killed in a horrific uh, act of violence. And he wanted to make sure that there was a place where kids could go uh, and be able to be together and, and not be isolated and and to be connected and to be able to be safe and express uh, what they were going through because he never had a place like that. And so he partnered with us uh, because of our strength in case management, Our clinical strength, our ability to be focused on a mission, which is to build better lives for kids and families impacted by poverty, violence, and injustice.
4: Camp Sheila was founded by the Sheila A. Doyle Foundation in 2011, an organization that also works closely with kids and families who have been affected by homicide. The camp offers activities like any regular summer camp you may have attended in your youth, but geared towards healing. Dan told me there are therapists staffed throughout camp activities so that an attendee is able to talk through whatever feeling may arise.
2: The, the camp is really centered around a clinical expertise. We have people who are experts at what they do. And so every activity is, uh, is a way in which uh, young people who attend the camp and their parents are able to do something which uh, helps them be connected to uh, what they've been going through. So we have art therapy, which is a way to honor and celebrate Uh, those people who are no longer in their lives. We do a a creative writing workshop I'm actually teaching. We have rope climbing adventure therapy.
4: This year's camp took place just a few weeks ago, with around 30 kids and 12 adults in attendance. But the help Dan and his team offer doesn't end when the camp does. The org offers programs for this kind of grief all year round, including a monthly support group and providing college scholarships.
2: How do you sit with an emotion And not run away from that emotion. How do you sit with that emotion without trying to numb that emotion? Because what we don't want to see happen is that somebody who's gone through a horrific uh, trauma in their life and lost to to numb that through substance abuse or to numb that through any other kind of addiction or to be so uh, immersed in their pain that they end up inflicting that pain on someone else. You know, so it's really getting young people uh, and their parents to be able to sit with it and get... uh, comfortable with their discomfort, as horrible as that is, but also because recognizing that that is the very positive and healthy way uh, in order to have type of healthy life uh, that everyone's striving to have.
4: Grief camps and support groups are an amazing way to heal during grief. But before we get more into why, let us first explore what grief looks like psychologically. This episode will be a tad different than our usual ones. I'll be lending my perspective as a person who is currently grieving with the help of my co-producer, Jim Hankey. I would like to take a moment before I talk about my feelings around grief to say something about my ma, Jennifer Gidry. She raised three kids on her own with nights of dancing in the living room and a way to whip up something gourmet out of nothing. And I miss her. While my mom's death wasn't a homicide, it was still unexpected. But the point is all people grieve differently and how your loved one died can affect that process too. So I spoke with Brendan Johnston, a licensed practicing counselor at Deaf Counseling in Chicago, who specializes in grief therapy. Let's start. We're going to start broad. Okay, can we go through what the stages of grief
0: are? Sure, absolutely. Um, so, Kubler Ross developed uh, the stages um, in nineteen sixty nine, um, and initially, the the model that she was working from, she was studying uh, terminally ill patients, and so within that context. Um, the stages make sense as sort of a step model that you pass through from one to the other to the other. But in terms of grief in general, it doesn't really work that way. Um, So there's the five main stages, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Um, But with grief in general, uh, people don't always go through all of them in that order, or even land on any particular stage. And sometimes you'll go to one and you'll slip back into another or experience two at the same time. So really it's more of a, um, uh, an explanatory framework for understanding grief and the way that it can show up. Um, but it's not something that just is, uh, that's constant in that way. I would be leery to say that anything's universal, but grief and loss probably are. And it's paradoxical because, uh, it's universal in the particularity of the way that it shows up for people. So everybody experiences it, but it looks different for everyone.
4: I wanted to play this audio for Jim, who admits he hasn't had a traumatic loss of a family member in his life, so that we could both provide some context and ask some questions about grief ourselves with help from Chris Lopez.
3: So that's what's really interesting about this conversation already, is that what we know to be the five stages of grief, he automatically says, like, we don't really do this. Like, they were set up in this way, and we we kind of hear about them as a culture. I mean, no one kind of like when, when would we have first heard of the five stages of grief? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. No, no parent really sits down and goes, Hey, this is just kind of what everybody understands to be the five stages of grief. Mm -hmm. We get that from either pop culture or we get it from someplace else. Or maybe there was a a scenario in which we lost somebody and then you hear about it or whatever, but it's not something that like, you know, no one gives you a book at five and goes like, here's this five stages of grief.
4: Just starting off. Like that point is so interesting because yeah, like we hear about the stages of grief really colloquially, and it. but it's always a bit, right? Oh, mm-hmm. like I dropped my ice cream cone on the ground. Now I'm going through the stages of grief, you know, yeah, all these type right. of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and before I was grieving, I was kind of like, OK, LOL, like I get what you mean, right? Because mm-hmm. we're familiar enough. But yeah. now it's one of those things that's like, oh, yeah, like to me and everybody, obviously, like it's not linear. Grief doesn't exist on a binary. And I wish it did. Yeah. Right? Like I wish right. I wish it was a checklist that yeah, it was like,
3: line. Yeah. like check. finish OK, right. I
4: did. I went through this month right. of bargaining and right. now it's like I can get to accept acceptance next. Right. But yep. it's crazy how it can go. You can experience I've experienced multiple in like the same day. Yeah. Brennan actually shared a helpful metaphor about this feeling.
0: I didn't come up with this metaphor. I wish I knew who did so I could uh, reference them. But I use it all the time because I think it's really helpful in thinking about it. If you imagine that grief is a ball and you have a jar and the ball just fits in the jar, if you were to put the lid on it and shake it, the ball would barely move around. Over time, it's not that the ball shrinks, it's that the jar gets bigger. Eventually, there's more space for that ball to move around. Eventually, there's more space for other things to fill up that jar. So it's not so much that the grief is going away or shrinking, it's that. Our lives are changing and adapting around that grief. Our relationship to that grief is changing. So recognizing that it's not something that we can just get over or move through is really important too, I think.
4: So can we discuss some of the ways that grief can affect a person physically and also just their mental well-being as well?
0: Sure, absolutely. Grief can touch absolutely every aspect of life, emotionally, physically, in relationships, those sorts of things. But uh, I think I would be remiss if I didn't mention my good old friend Freud at this point. Way back in 1917, he wrote this paper called Mourning and Melancholia, and he really expanded the way that we thought about grief. Previously, it was something that was just thought about in terms of uh, loss of a loved one, something like that. And he expanded it to any kind of loss, internal or external. That when we lose somebody, we're not just losing the person, but we're also losing a part of ourselves, the part of ourselves that was in relation to that person. And furthermore, in, the, in that way, we can go to great lengths to sort of erect these defenses to protect ourselves from acknowledging that grief. I think that happens a lot, and particularly in our culture, which seems to be kind of allergic to grief. I mean, if we think about it, we get like maybe a few bereavement days at most jobs, and then we're expected to just get right back into work. There's this idea that grief is something that people can just get through or get over, and that is not the case at all. Grief can show up in physical symptoms, absolutely. So some people might experience insomnia. Some people might start to have panic attacks There's an excellent book by Claire Bidwell-Smith, another clinician, and she talks about anxiety as another stage of grief in the Kubler-Ross model. That's something that's often not acknowledged. So it it can have very, very physiological symptoms for a lot of people.
3: I am glad to hear him talk about anxiety in all this because Mm -hmm. now it makes so much sense. You look at those five stages and you go like, oh yeah, where's anxiety in this? It, it's a lot to sit with to think about how we are allergic to grief in the sense of, like, you're not going to get this many days. You're not going to get, you know, what what you may need. But yet we all experience it. Well, you know, it's like a denial of, yeah. like, everybody like, okay, you can only have this many days off or, like, whatever.
4: It is one of those things that life-altering. It's your
3: one like, parental figure. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
4: truly. And it's one of those things that's like, but I don't get a card, right? And I, and I thought about this all year, like, like I wish I had a freaking dead mom card. To get, like My car got repoed this summer because I was too depressed to pay my parking tickets. Yeah. And you know what, Chicago doesn't care that I was too sad to pay my parking tickets, yeah. you know? Or right. like, right. I still have rent to pay. It's like we are allergic to grief because we just, I don't know, we're so individualistic, but I also think people are uncomfortable by it.
2: People oh, yeah, are so
4: uncomfortable by it, yeah, right? right? I think that there's a reality to where people don't wanna think about it if it was them. I've, I've talked about a lot with people, is that I'm still young. Your 20s are for living free, you know, all these type of things, if you have the privilege to do that, right? Yeah, if you have right. the privilege to do it, then you get to discover yourself. You get mm-hmm. to make bad decisions. You get to not be that close with your family. And so to be 24, my mom dying, it's one of those things that just sucks because it's like, I thought I had this time, right? I, I yeah. thought I had all this time to get that. Yeah. But also beyond that, I think there are plenty of people my age, they can't relate to it. They can't fathom it, right? Yeah, because right. Yep. our brains, where we're at, it's like we don't think about death. We, no. just, we just aren't supposed to at this time.
3: Well, right. There is a lot. I use this. This is kind of unrelated. But like the human brain wasn't meant to handle fame. I bring that up because I don't think that your mental brain was meant to handle so much of this you know what i mean like like that people will say and it's probably something people have heard um you know it's like well god will only give you what you can handle or something like that which is really like i understand the sentiment by it i truly do but it's a very hard thing to hear in in real life because it's like oh good then i guess i just have to handle this and it's and it's
4: stupid and it's stupid so here's the thing, I appreciate it. I think that yes, we should take pride in the in the things that we've done and, and then the progress we've made. But when people look at me and they go, Ariel, like you are like the strongest person that I know type thing. You're just so strong and you're doing all this stuff. And it's like, babe, I never asked to be strong. I never got asked to put in the scenario what this is is survival. Yeah. Anybody right now who's experiencing this, it's like nobody freaking asked for that. Right. And what
3: other, going back to your rent thing, what other choice did I have? My other option, which I probably would have loved, is sitting in a corner, in a ball, crying. Yes, and for not, a year. And not for a year and not doing anything. And I couldn't have survived like that. So to your point, this is just survival. You're right.
4: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's and that's the thing that pisses me off is that it's like so many people in the first few months of my mom dying were like, you are doing so well, considering, considering the fact. And it's like, what you are seeing right now isn't me. Yeah. I am performing, yeah. I am yeah. performing Ariel to oh, you yeah, yeah, yeah. in this interaction, yes, right? Sure. And yeah. my bigger thing is, is that people want to say that, oh, you're doing so well, considering. Right. But- People don't want to experience you when you're not doing well, considering.
0: Yeah. When you're
3: blubbering. When
4: when I am dry heaving on the, on my bathtub floor, bargaining with the freaking universe, you know, like, but you know what? You don't see that. And you know why? Because I have rent to pay. Like I have relationships that need to go on. And it's, and I just, I think it's, it's one of those things that people don't think about. I think all they can think is I would hate to be you. And you are so strong that you're the one going through that.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think about it all the time. Man, I'm just thinking about this mirror of just like, it's almost like they're saying, thank you for not making me look at what I think I'm going to be like when this happens to me. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. Like the fact that you are standing up, it gives me the feeling that I could do this when I need to be able to do it.
4: We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, We'll discuss ways a person can help someone in their grief.
0: Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced.
1: Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game.
0: You have 47 new voicemails.
1: Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply.
4: What do you think someone should know who hasn't had a major loss yet, but is trying to support somebody who has?
0: Well, I think maybe part of the way that we can think about it is that they may not have lost a loved one, but they probably have experienced some sort of loss in their lives. Um, Maybe the easy thing to go to right now is uh, the pandemic. That changed absolutely everything. We were all living in one particular way and then we had to shut down. Then we had to social distance. That completely changed the way that we showed up in the world, the ways that we thought about being. Um, And there's a lot of grief and loss that comes from that. I'm I'm not sure that uh, life as we know it, as much as maybe, some businesses or politicians want us to believe, I don't know that it's ever going to go back to normal again. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but there is a grieving process that goes through there. So even if you haven't lost somebody that you love, you can still tap into your experience of grief. And I want to put a caveat in there too. When someone is grieving, it's important to to show that you can uh, have empathy for that person, that you can have some idea of what you're going, they're going through, uh, but you can never fully know. Their experience is their experience. And one of the worst things that you can do for somebody who's grieving is to um, sort of steal the show away from them, so to speak. If you're trying to comfort someone who's grieving, if you're trying to be there for somebody who is grieving, it's one thing to, to show up with that empathy. Yeah, I have some idea of where you're going through, but I can't even... I can't even imagine what it was like for you as opposed to I know exactly what you're going through because I experienced this loss.
3: I'll I'll say, you know, my wife, my wife lost her dad just a few months into her and I starting to date. I never got to meet him and Mm -hmm. I never got to know him. And I've gotten to know him through memories and through stories and through pictures and through his extended family and whatever. You know, our son is going to be five. He knows that he's Papa Bob. And that's about it, you know, Yeah. and he's seen his grave and stuff and like talk about him in a sense of like he knows mm-hmm. that he passed away or whatever, but like he still knows that presence. We keep that presence for sure. alive, you know, whatever for for him, you know, through memories and stuff like that that we have. But I only bring that up in that, like, I don't know. I did the best that I could as mm-hmm. being, you know, the, the boyfriend of, yeah. of my future wife or whatever during that situation. But I don't know. I can't go back and think about how I behaved and what mm-hmm. I asked or what I offered to do. Or whatever, because I had never experienced that before. Again, painting with this wide brush of like, yes, they were a parent, but you, they didn't have the same relationship that you had with your mom. Yeah, just so many caveats as to, yeah. You know, yes, I lost a parent, so therefore we can relate, and mm-hmm. it's like not exactly the same. So
4: yeah, well, and I think that's interesting because there are ways to do it tastefully, right? Like I find actually somebody here reached out to me and was like, I also lost my mom at that when she was that age. And it's like, sometimes it's like, that's cool because I don't feel so lonely anymore. To me, something that's not very helpful is let me know whatever I can do. Okay. Because now you're putting the burden on to me.
3: Of thinking.
4: Of thinking about that.
3: Yeah. Of also
4: the vulnerability of me Mm. to reach out in a week. reach out to you, yeah. Last minute going, I'm having a really hard night. Can you be here? Yeah. No, I have plans.
3: Yeah, right. You know, and so for
4: me, it's like, It's a sweet thing to say,
3: mm-hmm.
4: but what does that even look like? What does that even mean? Yeah. Whereas right. what you can do and what some people did do. I have this friend who, like, we weren't even that close at the moment, but he showed up with food, and he didn't even ask. He said, Ariel, are you home? Yeah. And I said, I am, and he dropped off food. Wow. The, two weeks later, he goes, what are you doing tomorrow? Can I come over and clean? And I said, yes. You know, and that to me, that meant so much. You know, I had I had plenty of friends who did that, just coming over and we're talking, we're hanging out. They're helping me clean. They're helping me organize.
3: That's huge. You yeah. know,
4: it's huge. And also, would I have necessarily reached out to somebody and asked to do that? Maybe, but also maybe not. Like there's something also really embarrassing about being that vulnerable.
3: I'm glad you're saying all this because that that's, in, in my mind, the first thing that I would try to do to somebody would be like, hey, I'm here when you're ready or something like, <laughs> something to <laughs> that effect. Trying hopefully that that doesn't put enough of you know so much yeah. of a burden on you to say okay well now I have to call them when I'm ready to talk or like whatever but I feel like that at least is an open ended door mm-hmm. to like there is no pressure for you to even conceive what you might need you know you can yeah. do, I'm just I'm just here whatever but I do love somebody literally just showing up I'm you know I'm doing this because that is vulnerable when would you ever call somebody and go can you bring food over. Can yeah. you come clean my house? Of course you're not going to do that.
4: That's It's so, and it's one of those things too, I think is important to acknowledge is that there are different roles for different people too, right? Like yeah. I have friends who, I've had friends who don't even live in the same state as me who have been immensely supportive, mm. who have just been there to FaceTime me, to cook with me, know how I'm doing and just yes. to talk to me, just right. to give me company. But I think that, and that's important too, is that you can acknowledge in your relationship with that person, right? And sometimes it is immensely helpful for people to go, I'm here when you're ready. No pressure. I don't expect anything from you. Yeah,
2: that's, and that's I think exactly it. That and
4: yeah. depending on the relationship you have with that person, that could be great too. Yep. With all that said, there are going to be limits to what a person can offer. Here's Dan.
2: Recognize that you're you're not a uh, expert clinician and then it's okay to be able to like, look, I I can be there as much as I can. But um, and if you have that type of relationship with somebody that encourages them to get professional help, if they're – you know, having a really difficult time with depression and struggle. So those, there's multiple ways in which you can be there for somebody. And that's uh, it's important to remember.
4: Earlier, we discussed the grief camp as being a safe space for kids to heal. But does grief look different in a child than an adult? Here's Brennan's answer.
0: I think about a big part of it comes down to experience and the, the ability to communicate that experience. So... As adults, we have a lot more emotional vocabulary and a lot more actual lived experience to, to pull from when we're describing things, as opposed to a child who may not have that emotional vocabulary to be able to describe what they're going through. And then for teenagers too, I think a lot of times they get this bad rap for being dramatic or over the top or something like that. But if I think back to when I was a teenager, like those experiences, it was the first time that I was experiencing something. So of course it was going to be bigger. I didn't have anything to compare it to. So I I think particularly with teenagers, for adults and parents, it's important to be able to kind of set aside your biases about the bigness, maybe, of the emotions and realize that it might be the first time that they're experiencing them or trying to, to grapple with them.
4: I'm sure we can all remember what it's like to be 15, with hormones just raging through your body and a lot of things in life just felt big. I can't imagine adding grief to that mix. On top of that, when you're a child or teen, you don't always have the autonomy to grieve in the ways you can as an adult. I got to make the decision to go on leave from work after my mom died, but a youth may not be able to negotiate that with their guardian. So there's something powerful about there being a space, like the grief camp, where youths have the autonomy for one weekend to fully decide what feels good for them. This is what Dan had to say about it.
2: Well, I think you don't have to go through a series of steps. People just instantly know. It's ex- exhausting enough to have lost somebody, but to have this, this common language and this common experience and so you know what, and, and people get it that sometimes you're just not going to share it. And that's okay. And sometimes you're going to share, or sometimes you're going to cry, or sometimes you're going to express anger or just an intense amount of frustration or irritation, or you're not at your best self. It's just, you know, it's it's somewhat people already get it. And that's the challenge. And so, you know, for people who've lost parents, it's very hard, but to have lost, um, you know, siblings at a very early age, or parents, uh, you know, tragically, horribly. All oh, this is so devastating. So I think, I, I think it's just being able to say, I, I'm at the same place that you are.
4: A death caused by homicide can be a particularly hard grieving process because there's trauma that goes alongside with the grief. So Illinois actually extended the law surrounding child bereavement leave from work to include six extra weeks of unpaid leave to parents who have lost a child to homicide or suicide. The act goes into place on January 1st, 2024. So support groups and grief camps can be an important part of someone's healing journey. But what are other ways a person can get help during this time? Reading suggests rituals, religious or not, can be helpful to externalize what one is feeling to better understand and work through those emotions. Examples include funerals, of course, but also activities like releasing lanterns to honor the one you lost. Another way to heal during grief is to be with others, those that you love that can provide space to heal, that can help you re-engage with the world. And of course, if that's not enough, seek one-on-one therapy. If we haven't talked about it enough yet, grief is a journey. You don't only grieve the loss of life, you have to grieve the life you expected to have with that person as well. It's a special thing to have loving relationships in this life. And to lose a person in any capacity is and will always be hard. So I leave you with these messages. I just think that my big takeaway from this is that there is love and there is trying. And we have the tools. We do. And even at you know at the end of the day, if it's going to support groups or it's friends researching what grief looks like, There is stuff out there, and I'm just very thankful that we live in a time that there is so much mindfulness, even though we are in a time where our society is allergic to grief, right? But we don't have to be in our our insular communities. It's all about love, right? It's all the root of, of, of it all. The grieving comes from love, and the support comes from love, and I think that's sick.
0: If you are grieving, whatever way it is that you are grieving is okay. And other people, you might feel like other people can't understand what you're going through. But you might be surprised if you reach out to other people that you trust, that you can be vulnerable with, who can provide space for you to open up about what you're feeling, what you're experiencing. And grief looks different for everyone, and that's okay. That's part of the beauty of the the human experience. There's no wrong way to grieve.
4: I would like to dedicate this episode to all the loved ones we've lost along the way. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen. This episode was hosted by me, Arielle Ravine, produced and edited by myself, Jim Hankey, and Myron Kaplan, with additional recording by Chris Lopez. Our news director is Craig Schwalb, and a special thanks to Joshua Hernandez. You can follow us on all socials at WBBM Podcasts. We'll get you looped in back here in two weeks. See you then.